The text this morning that Pastor John is going to open for us is found in the book of Romans again, the first chapter, the 8th through the 15th verses. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers without making requests. If perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. When all around my soul gives way, then you are all my help and stay. On Christ the solid rock we stand, and your word is a rock. Your word is a rock. Come and position us now firmly on the rock. And guide our steps. That we not turn to the right or to the left into sin or unbelief or error. Keep us on the rock of yourself. Keep us on the rock of your word. Help me make it plain. And Holy Spirit, open the hearts and the minds of this people to see the glory, to believe, to love, to obey, and to make a difference for the name, for the name. Through Christ I pray. Amen. Amen. It's a great thing when your life's mission and your church's mission are one. And if you're an apostle, it's a great thing when your life's mission and your ministry's mission, like letter writing, are one. And that's the case with the apostle Paul, and he shows that in these verses. But to see it, we need to go back to verse 5. Just back up three verses into verse 5, where we learn what his life mission is. Through whom, that is, through Jesus Christ, we have received grace and apostleship. Now, here's the mission. To bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for... His namesake. Now on on the wall up there is our mission statement. We exist to spread a passion 
for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. And it is an awesome privilege to me and a gift from God that that is my life mission statement as well as the mission statement of this church. To be so in sync is a gift to me. It's a privilege beyond purchase or words. I can't tell you what it means to me to live for that everywhere I go, in all that I do, in all that I write, in all that I minister, and to know I'm in sync with this, is, this church's mission. Now, if you took Romans 1.5, which I think you should do, and say, Paul, what is your mission statement? I think Paul would say, I exist by the grace of God. You can see that in verse 5. Grace came to me. Grace. I exist by the grace of God to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. That's not the ultimate goal. That's the penultimate goal. The proximate goal. That's next to the end. I exist to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations on behalf of or for the sake of the name of Jesus and his Father. The glory of God. So to boil it down, I think he would say, my life and my ministry and my letter writing are for this one glorious overarching purpose to bring about the obedience of faith unto the glory of Christ and his Father. Now, what he does in this next paragraph, I think, is to show the Roman believers that he is really passionately committed to this in their lives. It could be that some group or person has sown seeds of doubt in their minds that Paul would have come here a long time ago if he cared about you. And if he really meant what he said in verse 5, that he wanted to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, he, want to come, he would have come here a long time ago. And since he hasn't come, and you hardly know this guy, he's a fake. That may well lie behind the way he unfolds these verses. But whether it is or not... He does labor to persuade them. I really mean verse 5 in your case. I am really about faith. I love faith in your case. I exist for faith in your case and the glory of God. So that's what I want you to see. And he does it in at least three steps. The first one is in verse 8 in the way he thanks God for them. The second one is in verses 9 to 12 in the way he calls God to witness to the way his spirit is ministering and serving God. And the third one is in verse 13 when he gives reasons for why he planned to come and hasn't been able to come yet. So let's take those one at a time. Number one. In verse 8, he is showing by the very way he thanks God for them 
that he is committed to their faith. He loves their faith. He wants to live for their faith to the glory of God. Let's read verse 8 and notice some things. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now notice four things in this verse. He says, first of all, that he thanks God for them. How easy it would have been for him to write, I thank God for your faith. And he didn't write that. That would be true. I'm sure that's true. But the way he wrote it matters. He said, I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all. Persons have faith. Faith is not a commodity that Paul is going through the world amassing into a big bag. Persons have faith. Faith is only significant because it is a way that persons are toward God. It's a person thing. It's a people thing. It's not just out there floating in the air. Faith. The obedience of faith. That comes from persons. And so he directs his thanks to God for persons, first of all. And oh, we ought to say this a lot more than we do. We ought to say to each other, when you leave here, go to somebody and say, I thank God for you. And then give them a reason. You're breathing or anything. Just, I thank God for you. We need to say that more. We need to be expressive of our gratitude. I just spent uh, Monday and Tuesday. Actually, yes, it was Monday and Tuesday in, in a place called Indiana, Pennsylvania. How many have ever been to Indiana, Pennsylvania? Oh, there's one. Awesome. Oh, there's two more. Now, I didn't... I, I was asked to go speak at University of Indiana, Pennsylvania. I had no idea where I was going. I was totally confused. Until I got there and I learned there's a town called Indiana. It's it's a part of the university system of Pennsylvania. And it's 17,000 students in this little town called Indiana in Pennsylvania. And I spoke to a group called PDI who happened to have their annual meeting there. About 3,000 people. You know, this little denomination. And without exaggeration, they're listening to this tape. I'll bet you. This was the most thankful people I've ever been among in my life. I'm 52 years old. I've been in a lot of groups. This was the most grateful, expressive, outpouring people I have ever been among in my life. And it's not an accident. They've been well taught and well modeled. It convicted me. I want us to learn from that. I want us to learn from that. I want to... I'm so fortunate. I, I, I sat there worshiping with these people. I thought, I'd just like to put Bethlehem in a suitcase and bring them here so we could just knit and rub off on us because we're not a very expressive people. 
In many ways, we're not a very expressive people. We're not expressive when I preach. We're not expressive in our worship very much. And we don't talk with much expressiveness of affection and emotion in the commons towards one another. We're not a very expressive people. Now, God loves us. Last week's sermon is still true. But we can do better. We can do better. Thank you. Thank you. And so it was good for me to get away and come back and want to be more thankful as a person to my children and my wife and to you, which I'll have an occasion to do before we're done here because of the way this text develops. It's very interesting how this text develops on this score. So he thanks God for persons. The second thing he does in this thanksgiving is to thank God for persons who have faith. You see that? I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. So faith does matter, and that links it with verse 5, right? Verse 5 says, I exist to bring about the obedience of faith. And now he says, and so I'm so thankful that you have faith. So he's illustrating in his gratitude that he's really committed to verse 5 in their lives. He's on their side. He's saying, yes, yes, I'm excited about what God's doing in your life through faith. The third observation is that this faith has evidently become visible or knowable throughout the world. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Well, now, faith is invisible. Romans 10.9 says, if you believe in your heart, nobody can see that but God. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Nobody but God can see the act of faith. So, how did this reputation get out there? How did people know that they were this kind of believer? And surely the answer is given in verse 5. The obedience of faith is what had happened. When faith is strong, when faith is real, when faith is vital, James says it works. Faith without works is dead faith. And faith that is vital and living is an obedient faith. And obedience is visible. Let your light so shine that men may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven, which is what evidently people were doing with regard to the Roman faith. So, here again, we see verse 5 offering the key to what Paul is saying. He's in the business of being thankful for and bringing about the obedience of faith, the visible. Paul is not interested, I'm not interested, I hope you're not interested in creating invisible Christians. Who have much heart stuff going on, and nobody knows about it. It's not in their face, it's not in their hands, it's not in their feet, it's not in their sex life, it's not in their money life, it's not in their vocation. But they say they got it. Ask them on the street in this neighborhood. They've all got it. They don't have it. They don't have it. And notice fourthly, I thank my God. 
He thanks God for persons who have become obedient believers. Why? Why not thank them? Why deflect the gratitude to God for something so profoundly inner and real and free and powerful like faith? And the answer is, it's a gift of God. You can see it confirmed in Romans 6.17. He says the same kind of thing again. He says, thanks be to God. Don't miss that. Thanks be to God that you were once, who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. How did that happen? God did it. Thank you, God. That anybody has broken free from sin. So if right now you have been broken free from a lifetime of unbelief and had a heart that now inclines to the Bible and inclines to faith, who are you going to thank? Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest, not of works, lest anyone should, what? Boast. You got two options, folks. As you ponder how you got saved, you can either boast or thank. Those are your two options. You can take credit for it, or you can give God credit for it. The Bible gives God credit for it. I urge you to follow the Bible. I thank God for you, he says, because your faith has become the kind of faith that is known everywhere. Now on this first point, we should surely learn that our life together should be devoted to the same thing Paul's is. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God. Now, Paul here is magnifying God in verse 8 by giving God credit for their faith. Right? I thank you that they are believers. I thank you that they are believers. You get the glory. That's the second half of Romans 1, 5. I want to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name. So that when people become believers, they magnify the name of God, not themselves. I was smart enough. I was shrewd enough. I was wise enough. But rather the name was gracious enough to me. There's a second way that faith magnifies the supremacy of God. Faith by its very nature is dependence, it's leaning, it's relying on another and therefore, faith magnifies the dependability of the one it's leaning on. If you take a risk because somebody has promised you they'll take care of you, you magnify their trustworthiness. You show how dependable they are. When you take a risk and lean on them and trust them to come through for you, I'll catch you. 
I just read a little story in one of the little papers that come from the BGC about a man who struggles with homosexuality. And he said, my first memory of my dad is standing in the water and saying, jump. He said, you catch me, I'll catch you. He didn't catch him. He laughed. God never does that. Never, ever, ever. And if you're willing to jump, you magnify his trustworthiness. You magnify his trustworthiness. So, the first way that Paul shows he's on their side and he wants them to have the obedience of faith is that he gives thanks to God for their faith. Second point. Here in verses 9 to 12, he shows the same thing, namely that he is committed to pursuing the obedience of faith and the glory of God in their lives by the way he calls God to witness concerning his ministry in his spirit to God. Let's read this. For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son. Now there I'm glad the NASB put preaching of thee in italics. Because it isn't in the original. And I wish it weren't there in the NIV and in the NASB. It's not in the RSV. Literally, it should go like this. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. I'm going to come back to this and explain why I don't think this has anything to do with preaching and everything to do with praying. Always in my prayers making request, if I perhaps, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established, and you should be asking, established in what? And link it again with verse 5. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Now here's what I think verse 9 means. You test this. I call God to witness... Something that's going on in my spirit. The reason I'm calling God to be my witness is because there's nobody else to call the witness. Because this is happening in my spirit where nobody else can see. I am not talking about my preaching here. I'm talking about my praying. I think that's what the verse says. How do I serve God? Unceasingly, I make mention of you in my prayers. You see that? For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the gospel of his Son, is my witness. How unceasingly... Now, here's the ministry. Here's the service that he's doing in his spirit to his God in the gospel. I am making mention of you unceasingly. Well, what's he saying? Unceasingly, when he mentions them. Does he just say, Romans, 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 Romans. That's not what he does. He doesn't just mention their name. He says something, and the content of what he says is given in verse 10. 
always in my prayers making request. So verse 8 said he gives thanks and now verse 10 says his prayers are relentless requesting. Always making request if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. So he ministers in his spirit, invisibly, nobody can see this. I don't deny that Paul probably prayed in public and prayed for the Romans in public. But relentlessly and ceaselessly he is praying in his spirit to whom only God can bear witness. Mentioning the Romans over and over and over, asking, let me go, let me go to them. And that's what he wants them to know. And nobody can prove that to them if God doesn't cause them to believe him by his witness. Just in passing, notice the little phrase, by the will of God. Always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Paul was absolutely submissive to the sovereign will of God. I want to go to Rome. I ask that you'd get me to Rome. I think they need me in Rome. My credibility is at stake in not getting to Rome. Nevertheless, not my will. But thine be done. There's a lot of people who think you ruin prayers when you say that. Ruin them. You abandon faith when you do that. You don't. You don't abandon faith when you do that. You are a believer when you do that. A deep, submissive, heartfelt acknowledger that God runs the world, not you. Forbid that John Piper, by his prayers, would become the governor of the universe. Forbid it, Lord. You rule, I will happily submit to whatever you decide about my travel plans. And both of my flights were canceled on Friday and Saturday to New York and back. And I say, all right, you want me to start writing my sermon at 4 o'clock Saturday afternoon? Fine. I'm sure there will be something about it, confusing, <laughs> weary, that you will get glory through, that I wouldn't have thought of. That's not unbelief, folks. That is not unbelief. Why do you want to go wrong? He's not done yet. He's not done telling them what's in his prayers. Verse 11 answers the question, why are you asking God over and over and over to get you to Rome? He hasn't really made his point yet. I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. And I said, in what? Establish what? Strengthen how? What are, you, what are you talking about? 
And surely the answer is in your faith, in the obedience of faith. This is verse 5 again. I want to come to Rome because I'm committed to my life mission in verse 5 to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, including you who are in Rome. I want to speak in Rome so that more faith and more obedience happens. And we're going to see next week, I'm going to spend two weeks on this paragraph. We're going to see next week about this fruit issue in verse 13, about the debtor issue in verse 14, 15, and how that all relates. But for now, just notice that he's finally, 9, 10, 11, he has gotten to the point, it's almost explicit. It'll come explicit in the next verse. It's almost explicit My service to God in my spirit on behalf of the gospel of his son is a relentless, ceaseless crying out to God for you first in thanksgiving and then in request that I could come to you in order that I might say something that would establish you. In the obedience of faith. Now, he's not satisfied with that verse. He's a little bit uneasy with the way he just said it. And the reason he's uneasy is the same reason I would be uneasy if I preach to you that I come to you Sunday after Sunday to bring about the obedience of faith in this church and did not say verse 12 which I must say and he wanted to say that is what I really mean please don't misunderstand that I may that I may be encouraged together with you mutuality here while among you each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. You see how he backpedals on verse 11? Verse 11, if you took it by itself, would sound like, here comes the apostle, he's got all the answers, he's got his total faith act together, he never needs any ministry from anybody else, he's always just bringing it about, bringing it about, bringing it about. And Paul knows, and John Piper knows, that ain't the case. And so he says, when I come to a church, and oh, you want to read this, read Philippians. If you want to see how somebody, how Paul loved the Philippian church, how they ministered to his need again and again. And now he's saying it to a church he's never been to. He says, when I come to you, I need you. I need you. And I say to Bethlehem, I need you. I need you. I need, I'm going to talk more about this next week, this mutuality of spiritual gifts he's going to talk about here. He says, I've got got spiritual gifts. I want God to gift me so that when I open my mouth, faith happens among you and you become strong and your obedience spreads more and the name is magnified more around the world. Yes. And then he backs up and he says, and if you knew the struggles that I have as an apostle, Or I'll just say, if you knew the struggles that I have as a pastor, you would know why verse 12 is in the Bible. For an apostle and a pastor. I need your prayer. I need 
your gifts. God gifts you, gifts you with wisdom, word, knowledge, healing, miracles. We need each other. The staff needs you. We do have something for you. We do our best to give our lives to you. But this is church, folks. This is a body. And though in one sense we are shepherds, in another profound sense we are bad, bad, bad sheep. <laughs> and we need the shepherd through the sheep to minister to us. So, let verse 12 sink in for Paul, sink in for me, sink in for the elders and the staff. The last point is very brief. Verse 13, he does the same thing. Namely, he gives them another glimpse to show that he's committed to his life mission in verse 5 of bringing about the obedience of faith for the glory of Christ. Now, I didn't stress, I didn't stress in the previous point this. Maybe I should say it before I close with this very brief last point. When he prays in verses 9 to 12 that God would enable him to get to Rome so that he could bring a spiritual gift. Who gives spiritual gifts? God. So he's praying to God that God would get him there. He's saying that when he gets there, God will give the spiritual gift so that getting him there is God's work, the gift is God's work, and therefore the faith is going to be God's work. And therefore, the last ultimate point of verse 5 is, for the sake of the name, he brings about the obedience of faith. It's all about God here. It's all about the glory of God. God's the worker and the giver. Now, this last point, verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you. So please, if anybody's told you, I don't care and I never plan and I never want to come to you, even though I'm the apostle to the Gentiles and, and people are always slandering me, please, I call God to witness I love you, I've tried to come, I've been prevented, I submit to the will of God, and the reason I've wanted to come, here's the last phrase we'll look at, so that I may obtain some fruit, fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles, fruit among you, believers. What's that? Listen to Romans 6.22. Now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you have your fruit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. It's the fruit of faith. It's verse 5 all over again. I exist, I exist as an apostle in all of my longings, in all of my thankings, in all of my prayings, in all of my gospel work, in all of my travel planning. I exist to bear the fruit of the obedience of faith for the sake of the name. That's why we exist as a church. That's the point of this message. If we exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, we will do that by bringing about the obedience of faith.
So would you join this summer? Pray on Wednesdays. Evangelize on Tuesdays. Come to the prayer march, the praise march on the 14th. Gather groups together for the gospeling groups to happen in. Let me summarize for you and we'll close. Point one, verse eight. He thanks God for their faith, for them who are believers. And so God gets the glory because he thanks God and their faith is highlighted. He shows how much he cares about it. Point two, verses nine to twelve. I call God to witness how I minister and serve him in my spirit where nobody else can see. How? By praying continually for the Romans. How? By asking for me to get there. Why? So that I can establish them in what? Faith. And so there's my life calling again. I want to bring about faith, the obedience of faith. And then thirdly, verse 13, please believe me. I want to come to you and I have made plans and I have been thwarted and my reason for coming and God help me. I'm going to get there is to bear fruit among you. And my fruit that I'm after is the fruit of faith, the obedience of faith. Father, it may well be, as I'm sure it is, that as we leave here, some really feel that phrase, when all around my soul gives way, job gives way, health gives way, a friendship gives way, a marriage gives way. I just bless them, Lord. May they know right now, beyond the shadow of a doubt, you don't give way. You don't give way. That you're a rock and you'll be there for them. You'll be underneath them. And you don't let your children give way. May they hold to this glorious promise. You are my beloved. And I'm yours. And I will not let you go. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.